Hi, I'm Bob Bashansky. Welcome to the latest edition of Politics, a Love Story. We often hear stories of how immigrants are overrunning our country and taking our jobs. And as the failed former president said, as he announced that he was running for president, rapists and murderers are coming into the country from Mexico. Lies, lies, and more lies coming out of the mouth of a compulsive liar. Mexicans occupied our Southwest long before the rest of us did. As the first of the immigrants did when they arrived, they just shunted aside those people living on the land and appropriated it. With black people, it is a story that is as bad, if not worse. Black people were kidnapped from their homes in Africa, chained, put in the belly of some sailing vessel, and brought to what has become America and sold at auction. There are people in this country who are trying to hide what is obvious. We did some bad things before we, we created this country and did so for a number of years afterwards. You could try, but you can't deny what happened. Try as you might. We are not here to talk about our long past. We'll save that for another day. Today, we will talk about our more recent history and the coming of age of those people who were enslaved or had their land taken from them. Blacks and Latinos have begun to not just increase in numbers, but in political power as well. Our guest today, Michael D. Minta, has written an excellent book about Black and Latino interest group advocacy on Capitol Hill and how it came about. The name of the book is No Longer Outsiders. Michael D. Minta is Associate Professor in Political Science at the University of Minnesota Twin Cities. I am glad to make to welcome Michael to Politics, a Love Story. Hi, Michael. Hi, Bob. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Well, I'm very happy that you're here. So the CBC, that's the Congressional Black Caucus, and the LCCR, Leadership Conference for Civil Rights, started to show their power and their relevance when they helped pass the 2010 Fair Sentencing Act signed by President Barack Obama. Um, is that actually the beginning of the show of power, or did it start somewhat before that? No, these, I mean, these groups have had, had power. Um, but, you know, where I wanted to look at is because most people don't look at kind of like the insider game of, of politics. They usually see these groups as, as they advocate, you know, these outsider tactics, whether it's protests, sit-ins, and all of that. But since the passage you know, the Civil Rights Act of 64 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. I mean, blacks have, blacks and Latinos have, have been fully incorporated into the body politic. And so they've always had lobbyists, these groups working on the Hill. But now that you actually have voters, and so I just wanted to see, well, does this actually lead to real power, this insider game where you're competing against these lobbyists on K Street, um, going to legislators, trying to get your legislative agenda done, because many people signal, like 1965 Voting Rights Act, you know, the marching stopped. And so now you're playing kind of the insider game. And so this is just a good chance to assess, are these groups successful in getting their legislation passed? So it's not, not necessarily recent in terms of, you know, these groups pushing for their agenda and playing the insider game. I mean, that's been happening since the 1930s, but I think with the newfound political power and the growing and the growing racial and ethnic diversity in the country, are these groups using this 
to leverage um, and, and represent the interests of blacks and Latinos. Um, now, I mean, I'm sure we'll continue to talk about it in discussion, but some people are somewhat concerned from these groups that playing this insider game may not be the most effective way um, to represent black and Latino interests in Congress. And you also point out that there's a challenge of assessing the interest group success and influence uh, because, as you point out, uh, it's friends talking to friends and you don't make as big a stink about it as other groups that are all of a sudden in there. And you also mention for interest groups to achieve legislative success, they must first gain access to legislators and then they employ a variety uh, of methods to do so. Uh, first, they establish a, rep a, a reputation that makes legislators believe that working and cooperating with them will produce an electoral advantage. Second, and most often cited, money gives interest groups access to members of Congress. And third, interest groups can gain access to legislators through lobbying members of Congress. So uh, th there's a lot of that going on, but how do you assess the success? Yeah, and that's yeah, that's the the big problem. And so what I what I try to do because you can't you know giving a political and many of these civil rights organizations, what's NAACP, Unidos USA. I mean, these are charitable organizations. Uh, their limitations based on um, well, many of them they can't they can't contribute to um, political candidates directly. Um, they can lobby, but there are restrictions placed on how much they can lobby. And so what I – part of what I talk about in the book is that the way that groups try to get around these limitations is just by trying to increase the number of black and Latino legislators in Congress. So, well, you know, we think, we like to think about influences or giving money. Well, like I said, it's hard to really figure that out because – these groups usually give – if they can give money, they give money to their allies, people that already agree with them. It's rare that they give money to their opponents, and despite you know, conventional wisdom, they don't give money to fence setters. You know, they, that's not what they do. And so part of the, the challenge that with these, these minority groups, they, what, I, what I've argued is they participate in the redistricting game where, look, we can try to get more – advocates in Congress. So we like to think of influence, okay, we're giving money, but no, if we can get more people that think like us in this institution, not only will they be sympathetic to our issues, they will advocate for the things that we care about, whether it's voting rights, criminal justice reform, economic issues. Uh, these guys will do it on their own, and we don't always have to try to go in and, and and provide some type of resource or subsidy that these guys will be our champions um, for these issues. And so that's and, – and these groups, the NAACP, Leadership Conference, um, Mexican-American Legal Education and Defense Fund, MALDEF, uh, they participated in these, these uh, uh, redistricting fights in order to increase – in order to increase more majority, to create majority black and majority Latino districts so you can increase the number of uh, minorities in these institutions. And so that's a way, um, like I said, it's kind of hard, you know, the way we do it in political science, it's hard to really find that direct one-to-one, -one, I gave you some money and you voted my way. These groups are like, look, we don't try to do that. We just try to get advocates. We try to get people in. And that's a measure 
of influence. And, um, and throughout the books, I, I put a look, some other ways than how we can measure success. But Bob, if I, if I could just back up one moment and say, sure. one of the things that really kind of that made me look at this project and really focus on it, you know, we've had Black Lives Matter protests. You know, I actually lived in the St. Louis area when Ferguson started. Um, then obviously here now in the Twin Cities with the George Floyd. And so I was like, I heard all the commentary, the NAACP, what are they doing? They're doing nothing. They're, they're, they're useless. They don't even represent the interests. They're, maybe we need a new group, right? These are some of the, the charges that were coming up. And I'm like, well, I've kind of studied this, you know, just looking at minority legislators. I see these groups testifying in these hearings. I mean, it's people like me reading congressional transcripts. You know, so I, I see them, and I see them uh, introducing legislation to, you know, end racial profiling, uh, uh, strong reform in criminal justice system. So I'm like, well, gosh, so maybe I, so I wanted to say, let me just systematically kind of assess whether these groups truly are representative and no longer out of touch. So that's one thing I looked at. And then and then once you figure out whether these groups are representative, then it's like, okay, are they actually effective um, in their advocacy? So that's really what got me thinking about this book and, and taking the tack that, because no one really looks at it. People just make these kind of conventional things like these groups are no longer effective. Latino groups are no longer effective in the immigration debate. So I was like, well, let me just go look and see what they're doing. And, you know, and I find that they are. Um, they are representative and they are influential, but as in the book, there are limitations to this to this newfound influence and power. Well, one of the the ways that they can't seem to get any traction with is redistricting. I take a look at Texas as an example. More than two million Latinos increased the population to the extent that Texas got two new seats granted to them, but not one of those seats was given to uh, a Latino majority. So they have no additional representation, although they increase the number of Texans by 2 million. Um, there's something wrong there. And then you take a look at North Carolina. Uh, there's a, a, a story that uh, for the last time around uh, that the person in charge of redistricting got it down to 10 seats for Republicans and three for Democrats when the population is pretty balanced, almost 50-50. And one of the Republicans asked this guy, how come the the Democrats have three seats? He said, because I couldn't push them all into two districts. <laughs> so yeah. this is what all of these advocacy groups are running into. And how do you get traction to move things in a more positive way. Yeah, and that's that's the issue with redistricting. Um, you you see the growth, especially as you mentioned with Texas, uh, black and Latino, Asian American also are, are growing, and but mostly Latino, the growth of the Latino community in Texas, and and that's the reason why Texas during the apportionment process is getting more getting more seats because of that that growth. But as you as you mentioned, it's not necessarily being reflected in terms of the seats that are, are being created. And that's partly because the state legislature draws the districts and the governor and politicians really. Now, obviously, if they can't decide on a map, then the, then the federal judge will step in and draw the map. Um, but as many of the, many of the judges or 
leaning fairly conservative on on some of these on some of these issues. Yeah, that's. I mean, you see some a push in a lot of states, whether it's Michigan, Arizona, and California, to have these independent redistricting commissions to try to take the process out of the hands of politicians because. Obviously, politicians, and particularly if a particular political party has control of the legislature, uh, they're going to try to do everything to first protect incumbents and also protect their their party. And so if you move kind of to these independent redistricting commissions, you can kind of take that incentive away and then draw districts that seem to be fair, um, that shows that, that are possibly competitive if if that's what uh, citizens want, and also representative of, of of the state, and so and the way people vote. So I, I think that's that's something that's been tossed around. But as as long as uh, state legislatures, governors, as long as they're in charge of the redistricting process, you're going to get these type of outcomes that you're seeing in Texas and in, in North Carolina. And, and again, Republicans aren't the only ones doing this. Too Republican. I mean, Republicans in Illinois are crying that, you know, Democrats are doing the same thing. And um, Maryland, too. Yeah, Maryland. So it's so it's, you know, partisans do this. So that's why many people in favor of these good government reforms saying that the way to really change this is these independent redistricting commissions. Well, I look at uh, what you wrote in your book, and one of the reasons why it's so hard for these minority advocacy groups to gain anything is that in 2010, you point out the U.S. Chamber of Commerce spent more than $132 million in lobbying Congress, while the NAACP, United Dos U.S., and LCCR combined spent only $2.1 million. Uh, so that's a, a real imbalance. And how do you overcome that? Yeah, I mean, honestly, you don't. <laughs> um, that's that's a, that's a lot of money. But groups are creative, and so that's part of the theory is that hey, look, we're we're not going to have the type of resources that these business organizations have. Um, so if we can get involved, and as you said, with the districting process, that's there's some challenges with that. But that's what the books about is like, look, if we can find ways to get more blacks and Latinos um, in Congress, that we that we can compete because that's, I mean, these, these members are making the laws. And so you can spend a lot of money, but you still have to get members to advocate for these policies and build the coalitions in order to pass them. So, um, and there's some, and there's, there's existing research that's kind of mixed on how much, um, spending money and lobbying like how much does that actually lead to policy change or the exist or or or, or maintaining the status quo it's somewhat mixed on it um that you can spend a lot of money but that doesn't mean groups businesses are always going to get what they want and it also pr- assumes that groups like the u.s chamber of commerce and the business roundtable that they're unif- uni- unified on all issues and we know that they're not, whether it comes to immigration issues, whether it comes to certain economic policies, these groups aren't necessarily always unified. So it provides an opportunity for these groups that may not be as well resourced and their advocates and allies to forge coalitions to, you know, pass policies or maybe prevent policies that might be detrimental to the minority community. So, so that, Mike, Michael, that, like, yes, you know, go ahead, finish your thought. 
No, so no, I was saying, yes. Yeah, so not discounting uh, the tremendous advantage that business community has, um, but but these groups understand that and they try to do these other ways to try to at least compete. Um, not not a not a balanced or or even fair playing field, but um, a way to try to to advocate for the interest of their their um, members. So, Michael, in doing your research and the reading, in order to put all these things together to write your book, you bring up that in the Federalist Papers, James Madison and Alexander Hamilton argued that pluralism, along with frequent elections and the separation of powers, would limit the ability of factions to acquire a monopoly on governmental power that could be used to oppress the minority. And although the pluralist ideal is admirable, pluralism in practice fails to operate when all groups in society are not represented adequately or equally. Uh, I don't think everybody knows that, uh, what was written back then in the 1700s. Yeah, yeah, that was, and obviously during that time when they're thinking about, when the founders are thinking about the minorities, they're, talk, they're talking about white male landowners yeah, and right. not necessarily <laughs> racial and ethnic minorities, <laughs> right. and in particular, uh, the people without property and, and resource, if they could somehow get the franchise and vote, that they would somehow pass legislation to take land and all type of other goodies from, from the, the landowners, so, um, yeah, but but you're right. The the theory, if we try to apply it to groups today, is and 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 that's and you'll have hear many scholars talk about plural, the pluralist heaven and how it's deficient in a lot of ways because there is that assumption that all interests are going are going to be represented and that these different interests are going to mobilize and that they're going to have their voice heard in in D.C. or or state legislative um, arenas, and that's just not always the case. And even when, and we see, you can just go on any of these um, databases, um, and you'll see that business interests are overrepresented. Um, and I, matter of fact, in one of my classes, I was just showing, and we went down the list of the biggest spenders in lobbying since 1998 to 2012, and um, and then looking at political contributions and then you know i ask them like do you see any of the groups that you that represent you on here and they're like no and so it just shows that this that, that lobbying advocacy is just many of these groups don't compete on on that arena and they're they don't have a a presence every day and so as a result um you have you have a a small group of um interests really uh, having their issues brought before the Congress, uh, before the federal government, and and that's setting the agenda. And many of the populists were kind of responding to what uh, these other groups and entities want. So, I mean, that's not saying that's the right way. And uh, and also, I mean, the, the also the kind of discouraging thing is when you look at political contributions. Um, I think it's like I look at different numbers, like five tenths of a percent of the U.S. population donated two hundred dollars or more to federal campaigns. Five tenths of a percent, and then if you start going, I think generally you start looking by different groups, and it's like one percent. But those, but most people don't donate or 
so you have a small group of donors who are donating most of the money to these political campaigns. And so that's that's another challenge, too. So it's like with the political contributions and then also the lobbying that goes on also that, you know, it's just a very small group of people. Now, we all like to think that the vote itself um, can equalize that. And, and in a lot of ways, it does. I mean, it, it, it provides a check, but it doesn't necessarily set the agenda and and to the type of issues that we want to that, that many people say they want to discuss and also even the type of candidates that are running so you have a small group of people deciding that i want to because uh, elections cost yes they do i want to take this opportunity to reintroduce you and then i want to talk about shoveling against the tide uh, with facts and truth so uh you're listening to politics a love story my guest today is michael Minta, who wrote no Longer Outsiders, Black and Latino Interest Group Advocacy on Capitol Hill. I'm your host, Bob Bushansky. So it's one thing, Michael, to be able to talk about the facts and what's going on to get people involved and get them out to vote. But in the face of so much untruth uh, or lies, out and out lies, and of course, the biggest lie is whether uh, Joe Biden won the election outright, but all these other lies about so many different things. Money only partially overcomes that because in order to, well, I think it was uh, back in the 30s in Germany, uh, it was Goebbels who said, tell a lie over and over and over again, and pretty soon people believe it to be the truth, and the bigger the lie, the easier it is accepted. So, you have all these smaller advocacy groups that you've listed before and that I've mentioned. How do you do this? How do you do the work that overcomes the lies? Yeah, that's, um, well, I, you're right. There are, there are certain groups out there, whether it's, whether it's the party, um, the, the political parties involved, getting involved in this, or factions within uh, the Republican Party, specifically on the electoral stuff, like whether it's um, whether it was a rigged election, things like that. Um, yeah, I, I think there's a, clearly a certain faction within within the Republican Party that has spread and continue to perpetuate these type of you know, falsehoods. And again, I'm not, and I, and I want to say it's a, a, a small minority within the party, but it's a vocal minority and they have clearly resources to keep the message going. Um, I, I think many mainstream Republicans, I don't think they necessarily like, and you've seen they've come out or if, when they come out, sometimes they get, um, criticized when they say, look, the election was, was fair and our process is fair. Um, so, um, but I, I think that, yeah, I mean, that's a, that's an interesting question. And I was just thinking about this yesterday in terms of you look at the, the approval rating for Biden, um, how it's really just going down and, and every time you look at it and then, um, and then I've seen some polling that says that they're ready to, you know, a Republican, if there's a chance to elect a Republican president, and then in 2022, maybe a Republican Congress. And 
and you're just like, how does all this stuff happen, right? Like, what? Why do you know? We just threw a president out because we thought he didn't do what he wanted, or in a party, and now we want to have that same party back. And I think, kind of like what you're saying, it's just the resources to really um, <clears throat> sway people's, um, and not necessarily say sway people's opinion, but to bring up kind of minority views and kind of present them as majority views and people start to believe things and like you said on social media i mean there's there's much evidence now that for the most part you don't necessarily change people's minds but you can get people you can have people think about certain issues and make it prominent in their in their um and you can see it reflected in their opinion so if you're kind of skeptical of the electoral system but then you have someone telling you like it's rigged and all these other things and you start seeing those type of opinions coming to fruition. Um, uh, so I, I don't know, like when you talk about various, you know, civil rights organizations and maybe progressive groups, how do they beat back some of these things? Like, uh, I think it, the, the, at the top of your show, you talked about Trump and talking about Mexicans and Mexican immigrants and how they're rapists and criminals. And, you know, how do you, how do you beat back those type of falsehoods? Um, if you don't have the resources to go, you know, on 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 the radio or on TV and to consistently push back on this, and that's and and that's really one of the concerns that certain segments of of the population is is playing into the polarization and, and really driving this polarization that that we're having now. Again, not saying that our society wasn't already polarized before Donald Trump or or conserv or other conservatives. Um, but I think having those resources to really bring up things that are kind of conspiracy theories, um, I, I think that is I, I think that is damaging to American democracy. And I think I've stated that before, and I've signed you know statements saying that that type of stuff. Whether you're I don't care if you're a Republican or a Democrat. I mean, some of these things are just not good for democracy to really question the the validity of our elections, particularly when you have. Republicans, election officials, and Democratic election officials saying that our our system is fine. Now, obviously, there are some things that need to be worked on, but to say that the system is rigged and corrupt is just just not helpful. No, uh, and I think that things weren't much better in the beginning of the 20th century. And you go and talk about how one of the major uh, uh, ethnic advocacy groups came about. Uh, and I'm going to read uh, a paragraph from your book. Although racial and ethnic minorities were not initially envisioned as having a membership in American pluralist society, blacks and Latinos and the organizations representing their interests have fought to gain inclusion in American civil society. In the early 1900s, blacks in coalition with liberal whites formed the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People and the National Urban League to advocate for black interests, while Mexican-Americans formed the League of United Latin American Citizens to represent the interests of Latinos. So we're talking about groups uh, 120 years ago uh, or thereabouts started out because of similar situations, not necessarily with the lies, but because they weren't being attended to. And they, they took control of that so they could become advocates for their groups. And that's now uh, segued into uh, being 
in Congress for some of those members, lobbying Congress for other groups, and that's a good thing. Yeah, and and that's um, yeah. So there's yeah, there's that history. I mean, it's, these groups have been around, especially the NAACP and LULAC for for quite some time. Now, obviously, they've had. Um, I mean, blacks have been somewhat unified compared to Latinos on on civil rights and um, and a you know, progressive agenda. Latinos, much broader um, ethnic group, and have different interests. And so, I, I think you see you see it in terms of more. Um, I mean, more partisan differences between like Cuban Americans, Mexican Americans, and even Mexican Americans that live in Texas versus Mexican Americans that live in in California. Um, but I, I think the thing to realize, yeah, these groups are are, are advocates, and they claim to represent um, all minorities, and and they form they they've employed a variety of strategies, which includes trying to lobby Congress and also doing the outside strategies to try to change the laws. And so many of the issues that existed back in the early times, whether it's immigration problems. Um, you know, we're still having those issues today, whether it's um, now the NAACP with, with the lynchings and the extrajudicial um, killings. I mean, some, I mean, they're not lynchings, but some people would argue that some of this extrajudicial, um, uh, uh, whether in terms of police brutality, uh, is, is still being experienced today. And so that the, the, these organizations, you would think, I'm sure they were like, well, if we could solve many of these problems, it wouldn't need to exist anymore. But many of the problems that happened 100 years ago are, are still happening today. Um, it's it's just a long process in order to, to make change. And I think these groups understand that. Um, again, they don't have the same type of resources as other groups, but they try to figure out ways along with their advocates to try to make things happen. Um, and then also what you're mentioning about the, the, um, the legislators. Now, in the 19... The 1970s, like right before, like when they when they started founding the Congressional Black Caucus, when the when the groups, because you had Adam Clayton Powell for a long time, and he was kind of like the representative of the the black community and talking about civil rights and interest, introducing the Powell amendments that really said we need to go after um, groups that are discriminating against blacks, take their funding away. Um, so, but then you started getting more. As the civil as as the Voting Rights Act is passed, and you start getting more members elected um, to to the Congress, and they decide to form the Congressional Black Caucus. They ha- they ask the question: Should they be a continuation? Because many of these legislators came out of the civil rights movement, and so many of them saw themselves kind of as advocates. But then they're getting elected to office. And now they're legislators. And so they actually, the Congressional Black Caucus actually commissioned a study uh, to say, okay, are we civil rights activists or are we legislators? And the study concluded, like, well, we're legislators. And so legislators meaning that, you know, you can advocate, but there are also certain constraints on how much you you can do as a legislator because you're not just representing people in a group. You're representing your whole district. Now, the district might be majority black but you still have whites in your in, in your in your um in your district that may have different interests and so you have to start operating as as a legislator and trying to build these coalitions in order to get um legislation passed and that and that has been an evolution and that's one of the um the challenges of 
civil rights groups like the NAACP or Unidos USA relying on minority le- black and Latino legislators to kind of be your advocates because they are constrained by the party. Most blacks and Latinos are Democrats. Um, there are more Latinos that are Republicans, but still the vast majority of Latinos and blacks are in the Democratic Party. And so as they become more rise up in positions, getting various leadership positions in the party, um, they may not be as um, progressive on certain issues as many of their members would want them to be. Um, so that's that's one of the, the drawbacks of this strategy of relying, of trying to get more more blacks and Latinos is they may not necessarily, because they're, they're concerned about the party and staying in the majority. And, and, and if you're in the minority, getting back into the majority. And so they work very closely with the party. So the more you become a team player for the party, does it necessarily um, conflict with some of the more radical or progressive issues of, of, of the community? Uh, you mentioned Adam Clayton Powell. I grew up in New York, so he was often in the papers in the uh, yes. uh, 60s. And um, he was considered a hero because he was an outspoken advocate for civil rights for blacks. And because his voice was so mellifluous, he was a very effective speaker. But Southern white, uh, white politicians attempted to discredit him and oust him from the house. But as you pointed out in the book, he said, I wish to state very emphatically that I will do just what every other congressman and committee chairman has done and is doing and will do. So he was saying that the faults that they were pointing out were faults that everyone who get, gets to a position of power was guilty of. Yeah, yeah. And, um, yeah, they tried to deny him, seating him. And um, obviously they, they couldn't do that. And, yeah, Powell, I think a lot of, a lot of the pushback was, you know, because of, he was such a strong advocate and out, um, in terms not just of policy, in terms of civil rights, uh, and his work with NAACP, which I point out in the book. I mean, a lot of ways the NAACP had this close relationship with Powell in terms of introducing civil rights legislation, amendments to other legislation. I mean, Powell, he, he worked closely with, with them, but he he's also outspoken in just in terms of how blacks were treated in the chamber themselves, in terms mm. of uh, many Southern legislators, in terms of you know, calling them boy and how they, tra- so yeah, so he was, he was definitely uh, a pioneer in that sense. Um, but he didn't, but you know, Powell didn't really see, I, I, there was, um, gosh, I can't remember the name of the member who asked Powell, like, why, why didn't he organize a caucus? Now they, they didn't have as many members, but they had enough to probably start a caucus. And he was like, well, I don't need one because I represent blacks. <laughs> so, I mean, he, did, he didn't really necessarily see a need at the time because he thought he was effectively representing the interests. But um, many of the congressional black caucus members like, well, if we can organize and get more members, we can probably get more things done in terms of coverage on committees, introduce, introduction of legislation, uh, stopping legislation that's not favorable to, to black interests. Um, and then later, the Congressional Hispanic Caucus, it's like, well, the Congressional Black Caucus, look at what they're doing. We'll, we'll organize and we'll try to be this cohesive block and where the Democratic Party, they have to contend with us when they're discussing various legislation. They can't just take its word granted and we can 
um, we can get many of our issues and our concerns um, addressed. So I, I think that's that's one thing that the caucus said. Powell, I mean, yes, he he was, you know, he was a very um, powerful advocate, and he introduced a lot of legislation and pushed a lot of things. But um, having more members is definitely, um, when you, especially when you think about passing legislation and oversight of agencies, having more members is always is always better, having more coverage. So Yeah, and you pointed out that uh, just because you have an advocacy group doesn't mean that everyone believes the same thing. And you point out that LULAC, the largest and most prominent Latino rights organization, pursued an assimilation strategy and did not call for civil rights legislation to protect Mexican-Americans as a radicalized minority. Instead, LULAC officials argued that Mexican-Americans should receive equal treatment under existing laws because they were white citizens. In an effort to fully assimilate to an American identity, LULAC even supported immigration policies such as Operation Wetback, which deported undocumented Mexican workers and even some Mexican-Americans. Yeah, that's a uh, that's a very complicated situation there. Where um, so in, in many ways the organization LULAC wanted to like get rid of many of these barriers that hindered um, Latinos or Spanish speaking citizens. This before even Latino or Hispanic was even coined when LULAC was around. Um, uh, but they knew that they were treated differently. Um, but yeah, the tack was different. It was more of a assimilation type policy, like don't discriminate against us because we're an ethnic minority or a language minority, um, it's because we're white. And so that was kind of the tact and, um, uh, for, for, for the leaders of that organization for quite some time until the 1960s. You start seeing the kind of rise of the Chicano movement and more, um, more Latino consciousness and, um, and, and actually more activists pushing groups like LULAC to say, like, look, you, you can't, you can't keep the same type of strategy up. It's just, it doesn't really make sense. Um, but yeah, so like Operation Wetback, yeah, I mean, LULAC officials are like, look, we, um, they, you know, they kind of resented um, people that were coming over and didn't go through the process and uh, the immigration process. And they thought, well, it was making the respectable citizens, people that were already over here and people that went through the process the right way that they were making it tough on them to gain respectability within the, uh, the U.S. civil society. And so I think that's why, um, I mean, when you're kind of pursuing this assimilation, that's why you saw some of that support for, say, Operation Wetback. Um, and so, and many say, many of this kind of elitist type opinion. I mean, there were divisions within the Latino community, but but LULAC um, being a, a prominent civil rights organization, um, this the assimilation, this policy was was in effect for quite some time until the 1960s and 70s. Even um, uh, Clarence, Clarence Mitchell, the head lobbyist for the NAACP, he was really um, disappointed that he didn't get uh, support from LULAC with with civil rights, but um, as I as I I don't I don't think I discuss it all in the book. But many of these groups didn't necessarily want to be associated with. They, not saying they didn't want to be. With, they wanted to have their. They had their own challenges. Yes, they had discrimination, just like 
blacks in a lot of areas, but they felt that their challenge was slightly different and they didn't want to be lumped in with blacks. They wanted to kind of do things on their own. Uh, Clarence Mitchell was, was irritated by that. And, um, yeah, so he was, he was, he was, he was very irritated and you saw it. And also it gave late later when they were trying to uh, amendments to the uh, voting rights act, I think it was, in, it was in 1975 or so, Mitchell was opposed to including language minorities as a protected group because I mean, it, he said, I mean, he said because he thought that it would make it harder to get the bill reauthorized. But there's also speculation that with some other authors that he was still resentful for um, for Latino groups for not supporting blacks during the civil rights movement or coming out more forcefully in support of black civil rights. Well, isn't that similar to the problem today with Texas Latinos about uh, people sneaking across the border and they stood in line and they got their papers and so they resent these people that are coming in now? Uh, and that's why I think, and maybe you'll agree with this or not, uh, that more Latinos voted Republican in the last election from Texas than had before by a fairly large number. Is that not correct? Yeah, I mean, there's some disputed on whether or not Latinos truly are voting more for Republicans or for, like, with, whether it's George W. Bush or whether it's for Donald Trump. Um, yeah, and I, but, but your point about some Latinos being... Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I do think there is more diversity within uh, the Mexican-American community in terms of how they look at immigration issues. And because, I mean, in some ways, you're right. If if you're, you're you believe if you went through the, the immigration process and you got your citizenship or just say you've been a citizen here for generations and then you have, you know, people that come over that haven't quite um, – navigated the immigration system and and obviously there are some issues with the immigration system itself in terms of what makes people wait and all of that but yeah you 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 can't necessarily in a lot of ways tell if someone's been here for generations and someone who just came over in terms of how you're treated by you know um outside society, you know, so that's, and that's one of the reasons um, when I was talking to some officials at Unidos USA, formerly the um, National Council of La Raza, that's one reason why they put immigration at the top of their, of their list. Even though when you look at public opinion polls of Latinos, it'll say like healthcare and economy are like the top issues. Um, but they were like, Immigration is such a big issue because it affects everyone. I don't care if you're a citizen or not. Uh, you got family members um, that could be could be uh, stopped and treated um, unfairly. You you could just be a citizen yourself and get stopped, and someone says, "Show me your papers" and things like that. So um, that's so it's it, it's they view it as a civil rights issue and and uh, and i and i think that's correct it is a civil rights issue i mean if you can't um if you're if you're over here and you don't have civil you're not a citizen and you don't have civil protections i mean what's to stop someone from not paying you fair wages or not paying you at all when you do a job or 
Um, if someone takes your property, what can you do? I mean, it's very similar in a lot of ways. I mean, to where blacks were, like if you someone didn't pay you or someone could burn your property down, you had no no recourse. And so that's why many of these civil rights groups are looking at immigration as a civil rights issue that has to be solved first. But you're right. There are some groups that are opposed um, to immigration or to amnesty for for people who come over here who are undocumented. So, um, yeah, I, I think I, I think you're correct in that. And that's why you see some of those those conservative appeals working by the Republican Party. And then in Florida with uh, Trump, I, I, I noticed that um, he, he did increase his Latino um, uh, vote share in, in South Florida. But I mean, I guess I didn't realize until when they started calling out the um, when they did the electoral votes, when they were doing the calling out, and they said Donald Trump from Florida. And I was like, oh, <laughs> I, I, I thought he still lived in New York uh, and I thought he just vacationed in Florida. So then it made perfect sense. And then I started getting more information. I mean, he lives in South Florida. He has a strong uh, relationship there. He's done a lot. Of, he's worked on business deals with the Cuban-American community. And so it, it, it makes makes a lot of sense. Well, I think he was um, of the uh, idea that if he changed his residence, it would be harder to prosecute and uh, then uh send him back to New York to stand trial for various things. Uh, he figured he could do better in Florida, and especially with the governor uh, more <laughs> helpful to him than, well, Cuomo at the time was. So, yeah, he did that. No, that's, no, that, that, that's, that's, that's an interesting take. Um, but he definitely has cultivated a strong presence in the South Florida community um, and reached out with Cuban-Americans and others. So that's to me, that's not surprising. And also, I'm sure it was very helpful in um, having him win Florida. Um, I mean, obviously, it wasn't decisive um, this time, but it, but it, but that's, I mean, Florida is going to continue to be a swing state. So, well, uh, for a while anyway. Uh, although, you know, in Texas, uh, I was listening to a, a program uh, that does investigative journalism. And they were speaking to a professor of political science. And he was asked, well, if all of the people who you would usually associate with the Democratic Party actually voted, wouldn't they be able to elect across the state more Democrats? Oh, no, no, that won't happen. But then the, the person kept on asking the question and went several ways. So you've got uh, Asian population increasing, the Latino population increasing, the black uh, population increasing, the Democrats overall increasing. And if it wasn't for voting restrictions, what might have happened? And then the professor said, well, yeah, it would probably be a majority Democratic state. So it is a, a majority minority state, but it's not acting like one. Yeah, and, and that has a lot to do with the political incorporation of these groups. So you might have a large, you know, Latino voting age population, but then you have to look at the citizen uh, voting population to see who's actually, you know, a citizen and eligible to vote. And then you have to look at some of the standard um, things we look at in political science and that predicts voter turnout, which is education and income. And when you look at education and income, Latinos are usually um, lower educated 
inflation, lower income, and lower voter turnout rates. And and the same thing with Asian Americans. Even and this is this is different for Asian Americans. Uh, Asian Americans have higher education, higher income than most racial and ethnic groups, but their voter turnout rate is much lower. It's even lower than that of uh, Latinos. And so, um, you know, a lot of research done on why that's the case, right? Um, and some of it, some some are speculating about whether or not Asian Americans, uh, the engagement, you know, a large proportion of, of immigrants, first generation, uh, excuse me, first generations, um, Asian Americans here uh, in the United States, and then how much of, how much are they engaged in, a, in U.S. politics, how much of it's more of, you know, I'm, I'm still connected to uh, the country that I just came from. So I, I don't know if, if that question has been settled, but that's one, of the, that's one of the problems of trying to project the demographics into kind of like these political outcomes is because these two groups that are, some, are the fastest growing groups in, in the country and also in, in, in Texas, um, they have the lowest turnout rate, voter turnout rate. And I wonder if any of, in, I'm talking about in Asian households now, if any relatives were put in concentration camps during World War II in the, here in the United States, that might be another uh, smaller reason for not voting because uh, they resent what the government did then. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean, that's, I mean, that's, I mean, we could speculate about yes. that. I'm not, I'm not sure. <laughs> so um, uh, we talked a little bit about the origins of the NAACP and what it has done. But then you point out that uh, the NAACP has received much criticism for not being active on police brutality and shootings. But the group worked closely with Representative Sheila Jackson, Democrat from Texas, and Senator Ben Cardin, Democrat from Maryland, to get racial profiling bills passed by Congress. Its lobbying agenda, moreover, reflects the preferences of its minority constituents. Um, I wonder, do they? Uh, wouldn't a lot of people be worried about all of these shootings? Yeah, so I, yeah, so the, I don't think they got that legislation passed, but they definitely introduced it and, and pushed for it in, in Congress for the, 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 um, the anti-racial profiling. So they definitely pushed for that. Um, now, this is, this is part of the problem, Bob, with the advocacy by these, um, these groups like the NAACP, Unidos USA, LULAC. And as I've mentioned, many of these groups are 501c groups. Some of them have, many of them have a C4, which means they can lobby more. And, and we, and you've probably heard the more popular term for a 501c4 is a dark money group. Right. Um, yeah, so you've heard of that. So, so some of them have that also. They use most of them usually do, but for the most part, the groups that I'm talking about are 501c3. I think the LCCR is a 501c4. Um, but again, there are restrictions placed on how much they can lobby, and so these groups are very reluctant to talk about what they do or refer to it as lobbying, um, uh, because lobbying has such a negative connotation, and so. In a lot of ways, they prefer to do these things, you know, where no one's really watching them. 
they don't want to really it's and that's really one of the problems right like you want to say look hey look at all this good stuff that we're doing in congress and advocating talking to legislators working with them on bills trying to get amendments doing all that but they don't want to draw too much attention to it because there's they're fearful that the irs which kind of where these groups get the code from, like that there might be engaging in too much political activity and more so than they're supposed to um, based on their nonprofit status. So that, I, I think that's one of the challenges that these groups have where they don't, because just like, well, why don't they talk more about this? Why don't they publicize all the things that they're doing and the bills that they've testified on, things that they worked on with members, and I, they just don't want to. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Well, if yeah, that's, that's, they don't that's want to. Problem. Yeah. So um, we have about uh, three minutes to go. And I wonder, uh, with these advocacy groups that are becoming better at their advocacy, although that they don't always push what we would think they should be pushing, but they say that they're doing it because their constituents want them to do that. But what about the bills that, uh, like the... Uh, uh, the $1.2 trillion, uh, I guess that was an infrastructure bill that just passed. How much influence did they have in working through that and getting everybody on the same page? They must have had something to do with it. I know that they talked about the uh, the CBC was instrumental in getting a couple of people on board. So what are they doing? Oh, yeah. I mean, these, these, these advocates... Um Congressional Black Caucus, Congressional Hispanic Caucus. I mean, they're such a big part of the Democratic Party, and they and they're they vote in blocks. And so, any 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 House leader, Speaker of the House, Majority Whip, or anyone over in the Senate. I mean, even if you're in the Senate, you have you need both chambers in order to get things done. So, Senate's working. The caucus with the caucus, uh, the House is working with the caucus, and so they're making sure that issues that are of concern to the minority community, whether they're going to get their fair share in terms of of resources allocated to their communities, or having provisions in there that are going to specifically address uh, the interests of minorities, the, the caucus is there um, for that. And so you, you're not going to have legislation that doesn't. Um, address those particular issues. Now, obviously, one of the problems that's—I'm going to say a problem—I would say a challenge um, for um, uh, these caucuses. They're, as they as they get bigger, they're getting more diversity, and so uh, someone like Ilhan Omar, which is here in, in my state, um, she uh, she's not necessarily strongly tied to many of the issues. She wants she wants a more progressive agenda than what the Democrats are. And so, um, and you're seeing it with many of the other kind of justice Democrats that are in the Democratic Party. Um, and so I think that's going to always continue to be a, a challenge for, for, uh, for Democratic Party leadership and also for kind of the mainstream, uh, even people in the Black Caucus and Hispanic Caucus that are kind of these mainstream politicians that believe in working with the party. Um, and you have these progressives that are coming in and saying, no, we don't want to do this. We don't want to play ball the way you play ball. We want to do it differently. So I think that's going to continue to be a, a challenge as the caucus gets more diverse because minority interests aren't just, you know, on civil rights. Yeah, we can agree on voting rights. Yeah, maybe. But on en environmental issues, um, uh, gay and lesbian rights. I mean, these are things that can divide the party. And so this is what 
this is what diversity in a lot of ways is is good in terms of of presenting these 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 challenges. Well, as for representation. an older white guy sitting here in California, I would be focused like a laser on making sure that they pass a voting rights bill. Otherwise, that may be the end of the Democratic Party going forward. If all of these conservative states maintain their voting restrictions to the point where and and the redistricting that's going on, it's going to be so skewed. The Democrats will never have a majority in either house again, or at least for quite some time, unless something is done. Uh, and that would mean modifying the filibuster to either cut out an exception for a voting rights bill or end it altogether. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's the challenge uh, in terms of, I mean, Democrats are definitely under this pressure to deliver to, um, to the coalition and to the various groups that got them elected. And, um, and, and Biden and, and the congressional Democrats are kind of in this bind. So they, they're able to get that infrastructure bill. Uh, they're working on that build back better, um, bill. Uh, but it's, they're, they're still, they're still working on it because the progressives aren't necessarily pleased with many of the, the, the issues in there. Um, but, I mean, the provisions in the bill, they're not addressing Medicaid expansion, not really focusing more on environmental um, legislation, climate change, many of the things that progressives want. But but many of the moderate Democrats like Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema have already said if that bill comes over here, we're not going to support it. And so um, so that that's the challenge. Democrats, they know they have to deliver, but um, – there's this this real concern that um, if they pass legislation like that, they won't be able to hold on to their majorities. And so the filibuster is one of those issues where Democrats are they under because like you're saying voting rights, like they need to do something on voting rights. But the problem if 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 you somehow get you eliminate or change the rule for the filibuster and you make reduce the cloture threshold from 60 to say something like 50, all you need is uh, 51 uh, votes in order, a majority in order to end the filibuster, then Democrats could very well be in 2022 in the minority in the House and the Senate. And in 2024, they could lose the presidency. And so even if they pass voter rights legislation, you can have a Republican majority that could come in and overturn it. So and enact even broader and more restrictive voting rights. So that's that's the dilemma that Democrats have to deal with. Pass something, um, don't pass anything and lose. Pass something, change the rules and still lose. So, uh, yeah, or, or maybe lose much later. And, uh, yeah. Maybe we can continue that part of the conversation at another time. Right now, yes. that's what we've run out of is time. And I want to thank you, <laughs> Michael Minta. Who, the author of No Longer Outsiders, Black and Latino Interest Group Advocacy on Capitol Hill. And this was a very fast hour that went by, Michael. And I want to thank you very much for coming and making this an enjoyable discussion. So yeah, thank you, Bob. Appreciate it. And good luck selling your book, because I thought it was a pretty good one. <laughs> thank you. Bye bye. Bye. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.